After more than 30 years in the making, and after numerous delays, on Christmas Day of 2021, the James Webb Space Telescope, abbreviated JWST, was successfully launched. It took 30 days for the JWST to travel nearly a million miles to its permanent home, a gravitationally stable location in space. Then on July 12, 2022, NASA officially released the telescope's first images, and as you know, the internet went wild. NASA says of the image SMACS0723, it is the deepest and sharpest infrared image of the distant universe to date. One reporter observes, 100 years ago, we thought there was only one galaxy, ours. We thought the entire universe was the Milky Way. But Edwin Hubble discovered there were others. He thought it might be hundreds. Now, we know that there are billions of galaxies and in those, billions of stars. The image you see on the screen is what you see when you point the James Webb Telescope at the darkest, most starless part of the night sky, where all you can see is wonder. Indeed, with the Webb, cosmological wonder is revealed. The image you see captures a place so deep in space that it was utterly unseen by even the most powerful telescope before it. To date, if you were to look into the blackest part of the night sky, all you'd see is utter darkness. But with the James Telescope, what's remarkable is that each speck of light in the image is not merely a single star, but represents an entire galaxy containing trillions of stars. And when you think of stars, think suns. Only, most other suns are much larger than ours, ours which is about 864,000 miles wide. And think of the planets and the moons that orbit them. As another observer writes, the enormity of the universe is virtually impossible to grasp. One cannot help but gasp in wonder at the sheer magnitude of the universe unknown to us. And many in the sciences say all of this was started by random chance, by evolution. But in Psalm 19, the psalmist perceptively observes what is undeniable. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. We're continuing our study through the Psalms in our series, Summer in the Psalms, and we have come to the second last psalm we'll be meditating on for the summer. I've been encouraging our church to read through the entire book of the Psalms, all relatively short chapters. So with 13 weekdays left of summer, you can read about 11 and a half chapters each day, Monday through Friday. You'll be able to finish the entire Psalms, or if you started in June, you can continue to read two to three chapters, and you should be about 30 chapters away from finishing the entire Psalms by the end of August. I hope what you've been reading has been an encouragement to you. There is a reason why the Psalms are one of the most beloved books of the Bible, I pray that your familiarity of it will grow you in your lamenting, in carrying your burdens and anxieties and sorrows to God, that it will grow you in your prayer and in your trust of God. Psalm 19 is what one commentator calls one of the most memorable psalms in this or any other part of the Psalter. C.S. Lewis, the 20th century Christian writer, in his work Reflections on the Psalm, writes of the psalm, the 19th, to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Reflecting on Lewis's comment, a commentator notes, Indeed, it is hard to disagree with such a judgment, for the psalm combines the most beautiful poetry with some of the most profound biblical theology. It's little wonder whereas most psalms only have one or two hymns based on them, while Psalm 19 has no fewer than seven psalms developed from it, inspired by its theological and spiritual truths. So from the greatest poem in the Psalter, I want to share with you three truths 
of how God speaks to us of his love. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, God's creation declares his revelation from verses one through six. God's creation declares his revelation verses one through six. Point number two, God's law speaks of his righteousness. God's law speaks of his righteousness from verses seven through 10. And point number three, God's word prophesies of our redemption. God's word prophesies of our redemption from verses 11 through 14. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will aflame within you a fresh appreciation and love for God's perfect word. What a treasure God's word is for us who have been gifted his salvation. Amen. If you are here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you are not sure that you are, uh, we want to welcome you. We're so glad that you're here. There's no better place for you to be on Lord's Day under God's Word with God's people. And we pray that the words that you hear would grow you in your faith, in the Creator, the King, and the Lord of the universe, and the Savior and the lover of our souls. So without further ado, let's turn now to our passage found on page 456 in the Blue Bibles around you. And as you listen, I want to encourage you to please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the message and follow along as I read and preach to help you better retain these words. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible to read at home, please take one of those blue Bibles with you as a gift from us to help you grow in studying God's Word. Psalm 19 says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. How does God speak to us of his love? Point number one, God's creation declares his revelation from verses one through six. The first observation we can make is regarding the structure of the psalm. An initial reading makes obvious the two main emphases of the passage, verses 1 through 6 regarding creation, and verses 7 through 14 regarding the Old Testament scripture, more specifically what is known to us as the Torah. Bible teachers call these two categories of revelation the way in which God reveals himself. Revelation, which refers to the revelation of God in nature, and special revelation, the revelation of God in scripture. However, as you read the psalm over again, the movement of the psalm from general to special, and then in addressing the psalmist personal sins of omission, hidden faults, and commission presumptuous sins, it may actually cause you some difficulty in seeing how the psalm fits together. 
You may have found the actual words doesn't supply a logical connection between the first and the second movements. Well, if you struggled with that in your preparatory study of this passage, rightly so. Many scholars have debated that the abrupt transition of the psalm shows that Psalm 19 could not have been composed as a single poem, that the two parts separately represent two different types or genres of psalms. They notice also the literary style difference. The first six verses use long sentences, and the latter half of the psalm uses short sentences. But a more prayerful, spiritual, Biblical theological reading as opposed to just a mere literary or academic reading will give you the answer in how this psalm does indeed fit together. As C.S. Lewis says, I think this ancient poet felt effortlessly and without reflecting on it so close a connection, indeed such an identity between his first theme and his second that he passed from one another without realizing that he had made any transition. Although, of course, we would commend C.S. Lewis more for his Christian literature and not for his theology, I think in this instance he is right about this particular observation. As you come to read and reread the psalm and understand the psalmist's thrust, the psalmist's line of reasoning, you'll see that it is the most natural thing in the world for the psalm to turn from the revelation in nature which all human beings possess to that special revelation of God in Scripture reserved for God's people. Just look at verse 1 again and how the psalmist from the get-go means to communicate a clear, definitive message. As James Hamilton, professor of biblical theology at Southern Seminary notes, we want to pay attention to the poetry of the psalms because the beauty of the poetry is meant to communicate the intricacy and simplicity and pulsating rhythmic magnificence of the one the poet extols. Again, look at verse 1. The heaven declares the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now we've been talking about the Hebrew poetic form that are used in the Psalms to draw attention to and highlight certain things, whether that's through the use of parallelism or repetition or chiasm. And Hamilton points out that verse 1 is a self-contained chiasm, a poetic tool, which the surrounding phrases emphasize the central phrase. So in verse 1, it's more clear in the original Hebrew, but the heavens and the skies above declare and proclaims the glory of God and His handiwork. The heavens and the skies above declares and proclaims the glory of God and His handiwork. The psalmist is trying to emphasize what is the glory of God and what is the handiwork of God. Simply, in other words, the heavens and the space that is far beyond our imagination. After several millennia of human history, we're only now beginning to grasp a glimpse of how expansive, how marvelous the universe is. But not just that the heavens and the skies are magnificent in itself, more so because it declares something, it proclaims something, it has a message to communicate. The glory of God, the handiwork of God, the works of His hands. Now we're going to get to exactly what that glory of God and the work of His hand later in the sermon, but I want you to see in these verses the prominence 
of this truth over and over again that God is speaking, that God is a speaking God, that He is not a silent God about His glory in creation and about the work that He is doing. Now look at verse 2 through the first part of verse 4. It says this, Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The psalmist says, day by day and night to night, speech is poured out. Knowledge is revealed. And verse 3 is saying, there are no audible words per se, but its message is very clear. Verse 4 again says, their voice, the voice of creation, goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Simply, there is not an inch on this earth where the glory of God is not communicated. There is not a place in the world where the handiwork of God can be denied. As one commentator says, language and culture are not a barrier. Distance is not a barrier either. The voice of the heaven reaches the farthest corner of the globe. Men and women in every age and every place have seen God's glory in the heavens. Creation simply points to the Creator. Amen? This is why Romans 1, 19-20 says, But what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. These things have not been hidden. To look at the extraordinary images of James Webb and the infinite galaxies beyond our imagination and say, that's it. Random chance is the clearest example of what the Apostle Paul explains in Romans 1.18, an unrighteous suppression of the truth. Dr. William Dembski, who was one of my professors in seminary about 17 years ago, who used to be one of the leading thinkers in the intelligent design movement and a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute, not sure what he's up to now, said something like this. The very comprehensibility of the world points to an intelligence behind the world. Indeed, science would be impossible if our intelligence were not adapted to the intelligibility of the world. The match between our intelligence and the intelligibility of the world is no accident nor can it properly be attributed to natural selection, which places a premium on survival and reproduction and has no stake in truth of conscious thought. The fundamental claim of intelligent design is straightforward and easily intelligible. Namely, there are natural systems that cannot be adequately explained in terms of undirected natural forces and that exhibit features which in any other circumstance would attribute to intelligence. Simply, all those complex words to mean the fact that we could see and observe that there is something greater beyond what we can understand points to an intelligent creator. Just to illustrate how awesome God our creator is, did you know that the James Webb Space Telescope uses an array of mirrors to gather light from faraway galaxies, an array of mirrors. And this model was developed in the 1980s when scientists discovered a similar design already used, guess where? In the eye of scallops. In 2022, we are able to see distant galaxies 
because scientists figure out this is how scallops see. Anyways, I'll post the article later in our weekly newsletter, but that's just one fascinating illustration of how the universe, from the smallest cell to the expanse of the galaxies, shout the glory of God and His work. When you stand on a beach and see the enormous body of ocean before you, when you go on a hike, you guys, some of you guys actually love going on hikes, which baffles my mind. But when you see miles and miles of forests and trees and hills and cliffs and rocks and flowers and birds and insects, all creatures of our God and King, you just break out in praise, don't you? When you see a sunset and its array of colors in the sky, when you see a powerful rainstorm, you can't help but praise God and wonder, God is amazing. Creation points to the Creator. As James Montgomery Boyce says again, and I quote, every individual part of nature testifies to its Creator. If you look at the stars, they testify to a God of great power who made them. If you study the human body, you will find that the body testifies to an all-wise Creator. The petals of a flower, the blade of grass, a snowflake, the intricacies of an atom, the nature of light, physical laws like gravitational attractions, the second law of thermodynamics or relativity, all testify abundantly to a divine mind that lies behind them. Close quote. In other words, every day, every night, everywhere, creation has a message to communicate to everyone. And unlike that news headlines that come and go and gone tomorrow, their message has gone out to the whole earth, repeatedly spoken over and over and over again for our hearing and seeing. And that's the last part of verse 4 to the first part of verse 6. Look at it there. It says, In them, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. Now, these are some interesting, curious phrases, so let me just explain simply. The psalmist personifies the sun as the crowning achievement of God's creation of the heavens, and he compares the sun as the bridegroom and as the strong man, or in other translations, as a champion. So, like a newly married bridegroom leaving his chambers vigorous and energized and refreshed and empowered, like a champion running its course with joy, reminiscent of Eric Lytle, if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, the Christian Olympian turned missionary who once said, I believe that God made me for a purpose, and he also made me fast, and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. The sun also has a message. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. A rising and a setting, a beginning and an end, a coming and going and coming again. You can't miss it because it speaks so clearly, so brightly, so loudly. There is a God who holds all things who orders all things, who controls all things. He is powerful. He is beautiful. He is intricate. He is immense. He is glorious. He is undeniable, is what the Son is trying to communicate. C.S. Lewis again says, the doctrine of creation leaves nature full of manifestations which show the presence of God and created energies which serve Him. The light is His garment. 
the thing we partially see him through, according to Psalm 104.2. The thunder can be his voice, according to Psalm 29.3-5. through 5. He dwells in the dark thundercloud, according to Psalm 18.11. The eruption of a volcano comes in answer to his touch, according to Psalm 104, verse 32. The world is full of his emissaries and executors. He makes the winds his messengers and flames his servants, according to Psalm 104, verse 4. He rides on cherubim, according to Psalm 18.10, and he commands an army of angels, according to Psalm 91.11. But brothers and sisters, that's the extent of the message of general revelation, to know the God who is the creator from creation, To know him as the creator God is to fear him. Because as the psalmist says at the end of verse 6, there is nothing hidden. There is nothing hidden from his heat. In which C.S. Lewis again rightly observes, this is the key phrase on which the whole psalm depends. The heat and light of the sun pierces everywhere with its strong, clean power. God's creation speaks to us of his love because his message is clear, not hidden. Because his message is loud, not small. Because his message is repeated day after day, night after night, from one end of heaven to the other. Creation declares God's revelation that God does indeed speak. Which leads us to our next point. What is the glory of God and his handiwork revealing specifically? How does God speak to us of his love? Point number two, God's law speaks of his righteousness. God's law speaks of his righteousness. Verses 7 through 10. As mentioned, there is an abrupt transition in verse 7, isn't there? The subject of the psalm switches from creation to the law of the Lord. Again, it makes total sense given the psalmist's line of reasoning. The psalm is not simply to praise God for creation. The psalm's purpose is the praise of God for who he is for his people. Not only a God who speaks, but a God who reveals himself and makes his way known. But the way in which he makes himself known is through his word. God who creates in the most finite details is the one who makes himself known intricately, with detail, with precision. There is nothing abstract or random, perchance, by guesstimation about this God. The psalmist emphasizes this point even by the use of God's name. So in verse 1, the word God is the Hebrew word for El. It's the general use of the word for God, a divine supreme being. This is the God that every civilization in human history in some form or another worshipped when they saw creation. This is why there is no such thing as an atheistic civilization in human history. That's a modern phenomenon, as you know. Because nature and creation made clear that there is indeed a God out there, although God was known by various names and in various forms. But the psalmist would not leave us to guess who this God is, you see. From verses 7 through 14, the true name of God The covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David, Yahweh, that God, is used seven times from verses 7 through 14. You see, the psalmist was trying to communicate his name is perfect. His name is divine. His name is eternal. That's why in describing his word, 
The psalmist's use of the Hebrew poetic parallelism is so clear and so pronounced, in which Boyce, again, says there is no better example of it than here in verses 7 through 9. So follow along with me, verses 7 through 9. Six nouns or names for written revelation. Six adjectives to describe it. Six statements or its effects. So look with me again to those verses. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. First, let's talk about the six nouns. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, although this one's a bit peculiar, the rules of the Lord, all mean to denote the same subject, specifically the Torah, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But more encompassingly, the written word of God. That's what the psalmist is trying to convey. This is the word of God. Let's look at the six adjectives that describes the word of God's purpose. It says it's perfect, meaning it's sufficient. You can't add anything to make God's word better. It says it's sure, meaning it's trustworthy. You can follow it and it won't lead you to harm. It says it's right, meaning it's straight in a Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 kind of way. When you trust the Lord and lean not on your own understanding, he will make your paths straight. The psalmist says the word of God is pure, meaning it's inerrant. There is no falsity in it. And the psalmist says it's clean, meaning it's not messy. It's not complicated. It's simple. It has no hidden agenda, no strings attached. The psalmist says it's true, which means it's firm. It's reliable. The psalmist describes it as righteous altogether. In its entirety, you find righteousness in it. Hence, the psalmist explains holistically the progressive effect of the Word of God. First, it revives the soul. It brings dead souls to life. It makes wise the simple. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. In other words, those who claim to be wise in their own eyes won't be able to understand God's word. Only those who have been made alive by God. And in granting true wisdom, the wisdom of God, the word of God brings joy to the heart. How? Because it says it enlightens the eyes. It opens our eyes to see the truths of God and the truths of his word. Hence, it brings the right fear of God. And in fearing God, there is eternal perspective, enduring forever, you see. In verse 9, at first, it seems that the sixth statement, the sixth effect is missing, but actually, the entire verse 10 is the dedication to it. Remember, in the original language, there is no verse numbers. So the psalmist says in verse 10, the rules of the Lord are, verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of a comb. Of course, David is comparing God's word to whatever was best in his day. Perhaps if he was writing this psalm today, he would have written something like, more to be desired than Amazon stocks, 
or Google stocks or Apple stocks. I have no idea about stocks. Even better than 401ks, even sweeter than Carmen's Italian ice on a hot summer sunny day. In so many ways, in so many words, with so many parallels, the psalmist has one aim, you see. The God of the universe speaks through creation, and he speaks more specifically through his word. But before we move on to what it is most precisely that God is saying, I want to pause to reflect on the psalmist's confession. And I want to ask you this question. Do you share in the psalmist's love and appreciation for the law of the Lord? Can you honestly say that the commandments of the Lord are more to be desired than gold, than your paycheck, even more than your retirement plan? Can you actually honestly say the word of God, the law of God is sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, sweeter than the finest wine or the most smoothest bourbon? Can you actually say that? I want to ask you the question this afternoon, what is the word of God to you? What does your reading of it, your meditation of it, your trust in it, your love for it, your sharing of it reflect about your soul and about your love for his word? You can claim you are a Christian all you want, but a Christian who never opens his Bible is one who is clearly deceived of his true state or is completely arrogant. Let me say that again. You can claim that you are a Christian all you want, but a Christian whose Bible is never open is one who is clearly deceived of his true state or is completely entirely arrogant. Dr. Tom Schreiner says the psalm represents the experience of the remnant or the chosen of God. And the remnant did not find the law to be a burden or onerous, but a joy. The righteous who were circumcised in the heart did not sigh when considering the Torah, but found it to be a delight to their hearts. So, is the commands of God your joy? and your delight or not? If not, why not? If not, why not? But dear brothers and sisters, if who I am describing is you, you don't regularly, normally, desire and enjoy and delight in the word of God, here's a word for you. Here's a word for us. The entire purpose of this psalm, the entire thrust of this psalm is for people like you and me who share in this struggle to remind you and me of why God's word is the irresistible joy of your souls. In the history of Christianity, you are not the first person to struggle with God's law. You fall in line with a large company of men and women, even devout men and women, in which the law of God was a stumbling block rather than the way of salvation. Read it later in Romans 9.32. C.S. Lewis also shared in this struggle as he wrote his reflections on the psalm. He says, How should we translate charmante? Enchanting? Delightful? Beautiful? None of them quite fits. It's a feeling which I at first found utterly bewildering to delight in the law of the Lord. One can well understand this being said of God's mercies, God's visitations, perhaps his attributes, but what the poet is actually talking about is God's law, his commands, his rulings, his commandments. What is being compared to gold and honey are those statutes. This was to me at first very mysterious, close quote. 
Well, Lewis explains the dangers of attempting to conjure up or manipulate some man-made emotion or practice, a love and a joy for the Word of God that simply just isn't there. So listen carefully. Lewis says, Thus the law, like sacrifice, can take on a cancerous life of its own and work against the thing for whose sake it existed. When the means are autonomous, they are deadly. Which is why the thrust of the psalm continues to the next verses. Just as general revelation creation reveals only a part of God's character, God's sovereignty, His power and dominion, the law reveals only a part of God's character, God's righteousness. And just as there is nothing hidden from the heat of the sun, there is nothing hidden from the all-piercing, all-detecting, all-examining fire of God's Word, you see. Thomas Watson, the 17th century Puritan, says, Leave not off reading the Bible till you find your hearts warmed. Let it not only inform you, but let it inflame you. And that's exactly what was happening to the psalmist. As he was observing God's wondrous creation, he is reminded of God's perfect word. And in its searching truths, the psalmist is humbled. And he is reminded and he's convicted of his own sin. As Douglas Axe, also a Christian scientist and the author of Undeniable Rights, to know where everything came from is to know where we came from. And where we came from has everything to do with who we are. And who we are has everything to do with how we ought to live. Simply, as James Montgomery Boyce says again, what is the one characteristic that the six terms have in common in describing the Word of God despite the slightly different shades of meaning? The answer is that they all portray the Bible as words to be obeyed. Because it is the Word of God, it was to be received as authoritative, inerrant, and absolutely binding, which is the reason why the psalmist progresses into self-reflection and petition, which leads us to our final point. How does God speak to us of his love? Point number three, God's word prophecies of our redemption from verses 11 through 14. Look with me to verses 11 through 13. Again, it says this, moreover, by them, your servant is warned In keeping them. There is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden falls. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Now these verses need careful attention. As the psalmist moves in a climactic fashion from macrocosm to microcosm, from the universe and its glory to the individual in humility before God. But the climax is here, right here, in these verses. It lies in the microcosm, not only in the heavenly roar of praise, but right here in the humble laying down of himself before God. Another commentator says it this way, the glory of God displayed in the heavens points us to the grace of God in the scriptures. Well, how do we see the grace of God in these verses? You'll notice the phrase, your servant, is recorded twice in verse 11 and verse 14. And it's significant because David is called the servant of the Lord only two other places in the Old Testament in the superscription of Psalm 18 and 36. And remember earlier I said that I will tell you exactly what is the glory of God and his handiwork declared and proclaimed. And what's more mind-blowing is that the psalmist draws attention 
to the display of God's glory and His glorious work. According to Dr. Jim Hamilton, by placing Psalm 19 at the center of the chiasm that begins in Psalm 15, that runs through Psalm 24. Listen carefully, okay? Psalm 15 and 24 is about a holy king. Psalm 16 and 23 is about the satisfaction we have in him. Psalm 17 and 22 is about his resurrection. Psalm 18 and 20 and 21 is about his deliverance. And Psalm 19 is about how God reveals himself as the redeemer in creation and scripture. Amen? These verses teach us it is the work of the God's servant in whom God declares us innocent of hidden sins. That's verse 11 and 12. The psalmist is not asking God to forgive him of his sins. The psalmist is saying, by your word, your servant who keeps your word is declared, declared, declared innocent. Brothers and sisters, David was not certainly innocent of his hidden sins. Even if David had no unconfessed sins and repented of it all, he would not be innocent. Much more, David would not be innocent of willful sin or presumptuous sin. Psalm 32 and 51 are few examples of David's guilt before God, his confession before God. Simply, what this psalm is leading us to understand is that David is a prophet of God. The Psalms as a prophecy of God, which foretold of the redemption of God, which would come to be fulfilled through the servant of God, as according to Luke 24, 44, which says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, this redemption is the good news of Jesus Christ. This redemption is the glory of God, the mighty work of God, according to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he, the creator God, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, friends and visitors, by Jesus' sinless life, by Jesus' substitute death on the cross for our sins, by Jesus' resurrection from death on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death once and for all, which had no dominion over him whatsoever, we, like David, who are not innocent of hidden sins, can be declared innocent. We, like David, who are guilty of presumptuous sins, can be blameless and innocent of our great transgression. Amen? So friends and visitors, if you are here and you are not a Christian, may I implore you to hear the voice of Jesus, the radiant Son of God according to Hebrews 1.3, the Bridegroom of God according to John 3.29 and Revelation 22.17. Can I implore you to listen to the voice of God, the champion of God according to Isaiah 42.13-17. 
Can I implore you to listen to the voice of Jesus, the light of the world, according to John 8, 12? Scripture says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Friend, will you heed Jesus' voice today? Repent of your sins this moment. Believe that Jesus died and rose again for you today. Trust him with your whole life today and tomorrow and the next day and forevermore. If you want to know more about how you can follow Jesus, talk to me or Jeremy at the back door. Talk to Brandon, our service leader at this store. We'll be happy to talk to you about how you can follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as we conclude, be encouraged by the words of 1 Peter 1, 16 through 20, which says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountains. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So what the Apostle Peter is saying, the prophetic word of Scripture, this Bible is more fully confirmed and more fully reliable than what he himself witnessed with his own eyes and heard with his own ears at Jesus' baptism, at Jesus' transfiguration. The Apostle Peter says, this word is better for you. Amen? Brothers and sisters, we have the very perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true word of God, the way in which God speaks to us of his love. The reason why the expanse of the universe declares and proclaims, even shouts, is for the reason for Paul's prayers to be answered. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length, what is the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How does God speak to us of his incomprehensible, matchless, eternal love? God's creation declares his revelation. God's law speaks of his righteousness. And God's word prophecies of our redemption. Knowing such profound truths, brothers and sisters, may we join with the psalmist in praising God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Amen? Let's pray. Father, all creation groans. All creation, the expanses, the stars, the galaxies, the planets, from the tiniest creature to the atom, all creation declares and proclaims who you are, the glorious God. Father, what a privilege, what a joy, what a gift 
that we have been given through your word to know that this is not just some powerful, mighty God out there, but that he is a God who came to us, Yahweh God, covenant-keeping God, in whom you have sent your Son so that our sins may be blotted out, that by the death of him on the cross as our substitute, we can stand innocent and blameless before you. You are our rock and our redeemer. Humbly we praise you. Humbly we honor you today as your people. Be glorified, be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.